James, James, Bobames, Banana Nana Fofames. Um, okay, so this is a question. Is it now? I'm a 22-year-old desperate girl. You are not. It's coming from the World Wide Web, Triple W. I'm a 22-year-old desperate girl. I have no money, no job, no college degree. Do you have any advice or book recommendation about how to start a business or anything that will make me progress, especially financially? Mm-hmm. It's funny that she wants to make progress, especially financially. Not funny, but it just goes to show... Why do you think that's unusual? Well, I think a lot of people say, oh, money is not everything. But obviously, like, here's a 22-year-old who's got the whole world in front of her, many opportunities, many careers in front of her, and yet feeling this kind of... She says she's desperate. She's a desperate girl. She's worried first and foremost about money. Yeah, but I do find... I mean, this is just my view. I might be totally wrong on this. I do find that 22-ish is the age for many people, depending on what kind of circumstances you were raised in, where you kind of wake up to the fact that, holy cow. This is it. My life's starting. Well, there's that. Yeah, there's there's absolutely that. But there's also like all these things that I've done, gone to school, had a place to live, had food. It's over. Transportation, it all costs money. Mm. And, you know, look, if you're lucky enough to have been raised in a family where they provided all that for you, which many people are, some, but many are not, then that is, you know, that's the age at which you start to get either weaned or gone, you know, pushed out cold turkey entirely. And I think that's a huge wake-up call. So I'm not that surprised that that's the age at which someone says, like, money matters a lot. But I like the fact that she's not talking about career or job. She's talking about business. Because if there was one big piece of life advice I wish someone had given me when I was somewhere between the ages of, like, 8 and 18... It would Because I learned this eventually, and I did this eventually, but it took a long time to get there, and I always felt like I was kind of cheating or an imposter. The advice I w- wish I had gotten was create yourself as the product or the brand or the business. In other words, don't think of your working life as being limited to being a salaried employee. Because when I was a kid growing up, I just never thought about the possibility of earning a living or having a career or a vocation of any kind that wasn't being a salaried employee. And while that is a good model for many, 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 many people, it was not a model that I liked, wanted, enjoyed, and it took a long time to break out of the mindset that that was the only way to go. Because think of yourself as like me, Inc. Like me, as, in- as James Altucher, Inc., or just one me? No, no as, as Stephen Dubner, Inc., right. in, in your view. Mink. Uh, mink, yes. So you, a company would never just put out one product, right? They would put out many products. Diversification is the key to withstanding, you know. No, Tesla has many right. different types of Teslas. Three. So I think even more than three. They keep releasing new, new models. But, um, you would never just have one product, and, and me, Inc., with a job, just has one product that you're selling. And not only that, you have to commute for two, three hours a day. You have to be there nine to five. And you know what's the hard part of nine to five? What's the hard part of nine to five? Nine. Like, <laughs> we're, not all, we're not all ready to get up and go at nine. Like, everybody's different, but we're all kind of like rubber stamped into that nine Did to five. Did you know that there are different chronotypes of, there are, you're wired, people, some people are wired for morning function and some people are wired for night function. I did not know that. And there are places in the world, 
that are now arguing that employers or governments need to provide more flexible employment because it's discriminatory to require someone whose chronotype suggests a night owl to be forced to show up for their job at 8 or 9 a.m. I love how they can slice and dice everything to make regulations around it. <laughs> let's just find every, like the way you sleep, let's regulate it. Although, can I say this? Why I'm generally in favor of this kind of thinking is because I think there are a lot of different, um, different people are good at different things, obviously, but different people also require different things to be good at thing at what they're whatever they're working at. And so if job flexibility is the answer to all of that, not just night owls, but like women. Like one of the reasons that there's a big wage gap between men and women is not not because men are generally getting paid a lot more for doing exactly the same work for women. That's mostly a myth. Why is that a myth? Can you tell us statistics it, on it, that? Because it's a big It just big is. Myth. I mean I mean if you look at two, you know, if you look at two people doing a middle management job in a Fortune 100 company in marketing or whatever, and one is a man and one is a woman, and they have exactly the same education, seniority, ability, blah, 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 the woman is not getting paid less than the man. If so, maybe a little bit less. There seems to be, the data suggests, a little bit of discrimination still, and there used to be a lot. But this primary reason or reasons that women earn less than men on average is because women on average have a a higher desire for what's called temporal flexibility, time flexibility. And that's primarily because women still are traditionally spending more time caring for other people, whether it's their children, their parents, their families, than men are. So the argument goes, one of the easiest, most sensible ways to create better, more equitable opportunities for everyone, forget about just male, female, night owl, morning owl, whatever, is to create a greater temporal flexibility for work. So if I work for a company that needs 100 units of X work done, if I can do those units when I want to do them, well, that's going to help almost everybody. The problem is it's hard to set up a company that way. But I think more and more we're we're seeing it. We're seeing more and more companies with shorter work weeks, with more flexibility, with more ability to work remotely, and so on. Stand by for the answer to today's question, maybe, right after this short break. On Ron and Bevelu, we love to ask our guests difficult questions. Can I ask you a question about the N-word? Sure. Offensive? Were you the cutest baby that's ever been born? I know you were. Pat Jewish? First of all, yeah, are you? I am not. Not at all? Have you done your DNA with Ancestry.com? Yeah, I haven't done the DNA. Why haven't you done that? Is it derogatory to call you a kiwi? Your face is like a baby face. If Kid and Play had a baby together, then it would be you. Do you mind if I make a quick phone call? Uh, okay. That's so cute. Did you get a note? Sure. What about your great-grandparents? Were they slave owners? (laughs) They must have been. (laughs) Oh, your poor mother. (laughs) Listen to Rana and Beverly today on Earwolf.com, Howl, or your favorite podcast app. So again, you're giving yourself and you're giving this 22-year-old advice. Yeah, sorry, that was a total tangent. I don't think any of this helps her. No, you're giving her, it does, it does. So the main idea is don't focus on one job, uh, focus on kind of financial success in general. But what, what would you recommend? In a nutshell... I would recommend that she finds a relatively narrow field or pursuit, and relatively narrow meaning underserved, where she could go in and dominate. Like what would be, in your opinion, an underserved field? 
So that's the hard part. Well, I found, um, so, okay, so what I did, my career the last 10 or so years at least has been focusing on what I considered an underserved field. I always liked journalism. I'd been a journalist for a long time. I got interested in economics, kind of the the psychological end of things, behavioral economics and so on. And I realized that in um, journalism and in book writing and so on, this was an a topic that to me was really, really, really interesting, at least to me, and theoretically maybe to a lot of other people. It was interesting. I thought it was a topic that was really important. You know, how people think about money is a hugely, you know, powerful and important topic. But I felt that there was very, very little being done about it. So I thought, you know, that's something where I'm going to try to become fairly expert in that, and I'll do my best. And as it turns out, there was an appetite for it. But that's what I mean by finding a relatively underserved area. So, okay. Whatever this and like the way and, and like Freakonomics is a great example of looking differently at the ways in which people make money and understanding that people look at money in different ways could potentially help you make money by reading yeah. a book like Freakonomics. I mean, ironically, Freakon- actually, no. Freakonomics has almost nothing to do with money, per se. The money part came... Okay, so this was indirect. This led me indirectly to Freakonomics but because I started writing for two years related to this research that I was doing, and that's how I met you on this book that was going to be about literally the psychology of money. And I got dropped on the cutting room floor you really, on, your, on well, your book, The Psychology of Money, that never came out. You and everybody else in the book, unfortunately. But I did write, you know, I was writing journalism about that for a few years, and that's what ultimately led me to Steve Levitt, which led to Freakonomics. And then, but Freakonomics wasn't about money or finance at all, although I will say in the last 10 years that I've started to use a whole lot more of that kind of thinking under the Freakonomics rubric in the podcast and so on. Things about behavioral economics, things about psychology generally, things about value and so on. So yeah, so my deep curiosity in that topic became the launch pad for this line of work. So if this person who's writing, whatever she's into, she might be into... Uh, culinary stuff. She might be into governance. She might be into fashion. She might be into sports administration, whatever. I would suggest find an avenue that is, like I said, underserved, undervalued, and become awesome at it and develop an expertise in it. And hopefully, the dollars will ultimately follow. So let me add to that because I agree, but I'm going to add. I'm going to take it to the next step. You can subtract if you want. No, no, I'm going to add because you said the word hopefully. So let's let's replace the word hopefully with some actionable items. Like definitely? So so there's a saying, and, and this is just a subclass of entrepreneurship, but she's 22 years old. She's not going to build a new kind of airplane or she's not going to um, discover oil anywhere. So this is a very specific type of entrepreneurship of developing a skill or expertise in something, as you say, that, that people need and doing something with it to make money. So there's an expression... Um, if you want to develop an expertise in something, do it in one of these three areas. Get paid, get laid, lose weight. <laughs> so you mentioned you were interested in journalism about making money, which ultimately led to free economics, which led to your success. But anyway, take one of those three areas, do a lot of research, a ton of research, which is what you always did. Do a ton of research, find your own unique viewpoint on it, put together a special report. This is what I think, like, I don't know, 10 ways and 10 unique ways to... Uh, you know, lose weight or meet the love of your life or whatever. It's unique and different. Here's what you need to do. You need to give that away for free, that special report. And, and there's lots of ways to do it. You could do it via advertisements on Twitter or Facebook or, or some social media platform where you start to dominate and give it away for free in exchange for someone signing up 
for your email list. So now you know you have people who have raised their hand and said, I want to see more from you, and I, and I like the type of things you put out. And then come up with a premium version of what you gave out for free and sell that to that list that you created. Or find other products in the area that you approve of that you can also sell. Like you have a list now of people who want to lose weight. Find, other, find weight loss products that you agree with and, and you have an audience that's waiting to hear from you about products that you approve of and sell those and get a cut. So what's the value so this that is, you're adding in that circumstance? Well, you're curating? You're curating to people who have already approved of your ability to curate. They've signed, and you can directly communicate with them as opposed to like a TV ad or a store. Like a store, I don't know who's buying the toothpaste that I create. But here, I directly know who likes what and I can communicate back to them. So that's an extremely valuable asset to have. So she's asking just 22-year-old, what's a, something I can do to make money? This is a very basic way. It's, I don't even call it entrepreneurship. It's just a basic way to build up some asset that's worth it to you, to develop some expertise in something that other people are going to value, and then to sell something to those people. So that sounds good. Let me ask you a couple questions. A, this is going to take a fair amount of time, and B, you suggest giving it away for free at first. At first. So what do you do if you are not in a situation where you can float yourself for that 6, 12, whatever months? Well, you can't just, it's hard to make money out the gate tomorrow. You have to develop some expertise in something or or get a job while you're doing it. So when I started my first company back in the mid-1990s, late-1990s, I stayed at my job, my full-time job, my nine-to-five job, for 18 months after I started my company on the side. Wow, so you did all your work at night and in the morning. Or sometimes during the day, I'd lock myself in a conference room, and people (laughs) would be banging on the conference room while I was taking calls from clients. And you still didn't get fired. You were still able to hold on to that job. I was very lucky, but you have to have a combination. Luck favors to prepare, too. Like I would try to you know, do as much as possible at night or in the morning, but it takes a certain amount of hustle and grit as well to stay persistent in, the, in a somewhat difficult lifestyle when you're first starting out. But let me ask you this. When you look back at your own success... Or, and, or failure. Or failure, but you've had a lot of success. Or you look at other... I mean, this gets back to a theme that you and I may have talked about in the past, which is that emulating other people's success would seem to be a smart thing to do. But to me, it's not because the factors that contribute to success are often fairly singular or anomalous. So it may be that you just had more discipline, more ability, more intelligence, blah, 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 blah. But that's why I start with a cliche. Get paid, get laid, lose weight. That's because it's a cliche because it's worked for thousands of people who are in that particular industry of, let's say, online direct but marketing. But I worry that there's a lot of success porn out there that people embrace you know, here's what this successful person says contributed to his or her success. And if I can do it, I will too. And I just worry that they're, they're just, these are extraordinarily false and misleading prescriptions because the attributes that led to that person's success are not generalizable or whatnot. That could be, which is why I would say before that, we're all, we're all kind of assuming, by the way, that the foundation is built. So the foundation is you've got to be healthy. Because if you're sick, you're not going to be financially successful. Right. You've got to have good people around in your life. If, if you have toxic people who are you know, abusive to you in any way, whether it's emotional or mental or physical or whatever, you're not going to be successful in life. If you're not creative and practicing your creativity in some basic way every day, you're not going to creatively think of new ideas. 
And if you don't have some general level of life satisfaction, meaning you're grateful for the things you have in your life, if you're constantly miserable, you're probably not going to be have sufficient optimism or hope to be successful in life. So there's and a you basic, also have to have some skills like, you know, you have to be a good communicator. Like it's really a good communicator, but that's part of the building up a list and okay. writing something that uh, communicates to people. But so, yes, you have to be a good communicator. But that also comes from learning creativity and being emotionally sensitive. I don't and, even mean a communicator to the public. I find a lot of people that I do business with are very difficult to do business because they literally don't communicate their ideas or thoughts well or efficiently. They're disorganized or sloppy. They don't respond in timely manner. They don't know how to say things in a, a, a certain setting, a meeting, whatever, that's fruitful or productive. I, I think communication is actually... You know, uh, if you're listing the bedrock foundations of like, you know, the foundational supports to be successful, which I think I think you're really smart to do so. Health is something that if you're healthy, you overlook it, you know. But I think the all I'm saying is I want to add into that the need to communicate well, which is a... I agree. Very important. I think whether it's writing skill or speaking skill, very important. I think you do get that if you have those other things going for you, but I'll, um, I'm happy to add it. And a sense of also a sense of wanting to improve in all of these areas mm. constantly. So if you're healthy, don't just stop. You have to continue being healthy. You have to be the healthiest person alive. Or you have to keep improving <laughs> in health or keep wanting to How do improve you keep in improving health. improving in health? I don't know. Continue to eat well. You'll probably get healthier. I don't know. Are you improving in your health? I try to. Are you? Do you have any metrics? I mean, what are your I try what numbers to, I, do you want? I try to I don't use metrics, but I try to always figure out ways How to sleep. How do you know better. if you're improving if you don't use any metrics? It's there's what no are you, talk, are you a witch doctor? There's no quantitative, just qualitative. There is quantitative. I don't believe in that. You don't believe in quantitative health measures of any sort. No, because I think then you get obsessed with blood one pressure. Metric. No, baloney. I don't, I don't look at any of that. A1C baloney. I don't even know what A1C is. All right. Good what to know. What is A1C? Forget it. Is it like a some prostate thing? It's 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 Should irrelevant. I check my pro- I'm 48. Should I check my prostate? No. Metrics are worthless, James. I think they are. Questions about next episode's question? Here's a hint. Hey QOD, seeing as how our ancestors have lived off the land for thousands of years, why? Is there severe hunger in parts of the world today? Excellent question, Daniel. And I have, I have an answer. There's kind oh. of a technical answer. All right, let's have it. We got dominated by another species on the planet Earth. 